Thanks for the guys for leading us in worship. Um, you should have a, a bulletin on your seat, and on the other side of the bulletin is also the uh, outline for today, and all the, all the texts are on there, all the verses that we're looking at, and there's things for you to write in as well if you want to do that. <coughs> when Naomi was much younger, my daughter, she's away this week in London, we um, took her down to my sister-in-law's, or, or to my niece actually, she's on a work experience, and she's down there for a week in London, and it's a really scary thing when you're a father, and this is the longest she's ever been away from us, and it's, uh, you know, you're kind of, I know she needs to go, but this is a big thing, and uh, my niece, who's 27, sometimes forgets Naomi's not 27, she's only 15, so we had to have a number of stern conversations between Uncle Andrew and my niece, and just uh, warn her, threaten her, uh, and so on, and so we left her there, we've left her there this week, and I'm sure she'll have a fantastic time, their church starts at 4 o'clock, it's full of 20-somethings, they think that's brilliant, she can lie in all morning and go to church. Um, and then she's going to be in uh, teaching with my niece this week or, or helping her in school, uh, which I'm sure she'll have a fantastic time. But, you know, life goes really quickly, doesn't it? Naomi's 15, but when she was about four or five, we were shopping one day in Hereford, which is where we used to live, and the uh, big Tesco's in the centre of Hereford was on the uh, surface, but underneath the, the big car park in, uh, under Tesco's was underground. And so we parked our car and we were, about to, we were about to get out, uh, we got out of the car, we were about to get into the lift to take us up into the main store. And the doors opened and Naomi ran into the lift and I think we got distracted somehow or other, probably Daniel, blame Daniel, it was probably Daniel's fault. And the door shut and there was Naomi off on her own up in this lift and of course we're not there and she's about three or four, something like that. So we absolutely panicked as you can imagine. Now there was a, a, a kind of walkway up and back upstairs so I ran and I don't move very fast at the best of times but I ran as fast as I possibly could, and I think I managed to get there, in a, just about managed to get there in time. And I got to the top, but I got there a little bit late because the doors were already open, and there she was, absolutely distraught, wondering what on earth had happened to her on her own. This little four, three, four-year-old just sat there with, or stood there with tears in her eyes. Fortunately, there was a lovely couple who were there, were kind of comforting her, gave me some very disapproving looks. I was clearly a very bad father. Uh, and then Naomi just kind of, ran out and clung to us and, and kind of sobbed and sobbed and it was oh dear me uh, it was it was it was it was stressful it was you know it was heartbreaking in many ways and uh, yeah Naomi uh, thought it was awful we felt awful and I think judging by her appearance she was terrified and you know sometimes in life we have moments or we have periods of time sometimes it can be a day sometimes it can be years of our life where we feel utterly alone and abandoned, even by God. It might be illness, it might be health problems, or perhaps relationship breakdown, financial difficulties, family struggles, problems at work. It might be all sorts of problems, and perhaps all of those things sometimes combined together, where we not only feel alone and isolated from our friends, but we also feel as though God has abandoned us, and that's a really horrible, dark place to be in. It's a really horrible, dark place, and I guess... Most of us at some time or other can identify with having been there. And maybe this morning that's where you're at. Where you just feel utterly abandoned by God as if God isn't hearing, isn't listening. It's a horrible dark place to be in. Psalm 22 in the Bible was written by King David. He was the, the great king of Israel. And he wrote this psalm at a time in his life when he felt the same. Not only did he feel abandoned and uh, mocked by those who were meant to be his friends and, and, and kind of those in his life, but he also felt abandoned by God. Much of this psalm is really dark and it's heavy. It kind of lifts as we get to the end of it, but it's dark 
and it's heavy as David describes his circumstances and his feelings. And we don't know the exact circumstances. Different Bible scholars have kind of, you know, kind of guessed at perhaps what might be going on in David's life. But we don't actually know. There aren't any specific clues. What we do know is that for David, this was a bad time in life. It was a dark moment in his life. The language he uses is such that he was almost certainly exaggerating. He's using hyperbole. He's, he's uh, taking really ex- kind of extreme forms of language to make the point that whatever is happening, it's pretty awful. He just feels terrible. He feels abandoned. And we, we don't know how much David realized, but not only was David describing his own situation at some point in history, this is a real event for David, this is a real part of David's life, but actually David was looking forward, and we don't know how much David understood of this or realized, but he was actually describing the experience of his famous human descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus died on the cross, this psalm is actually looking forward, as well as describing David's experience in his own life at a particular point in history, it also anticipates and looks forward and describes the experience of the Lord Jesus as he was on the cross. So we're going to read Psalm 22. And with these kind of psalms, we need to read this and we need to understand this is about David's life. He's talking about his own life. This is real for him. But at the same time, it also talks about Jesus on the cross. There's kind of two things going on here. So read that with both things uh, in your mind this morning. I'm going to read uh, the psalm to you. You can just listen if you want or you can follow it along uh, as we go. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their their prey (coughs) open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. 
May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. We don't know what David was going through. We don't know what was actually happening in David's life as he wrote this psalm. But whatever it was, from David's perspective, the language he uses tells us that it, this was real to him. It was a horrible moment in his life, a horrible period of time in his life. David felt forsaken and abandoned by God. And he starts the, the psalm by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day but you do not answer by night and I'm not silent. As far as David was concerned, God had abandoned him. It wasn't that he didn't believe in God anymore, but he felt that God had just turned away from him, that God wasn't interested. Surely if God loved him, God would listen to him and God would deliver him from what he was going through. But no matter how much David cried out to him, it just seemed that God wasn't listening to David. In verses 6 to 8, he focuses on how his enemies are treating him and are mocking him that he's trusted in God. But God was clearly ignoring him. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And I guess David was experienced what we've perhaps sometimes experienced in our own life, that when we sometimes step out in faith and we declare to those around us, our faith that God will act in our difficult situations. And we make a public statement, you know, God is going to do this and God is going to help me and God is going to deliver me. It can be really hard when God doesn't step in and do what we've trusted him to do, when we've declared publicly, particularly perhaps to those around us who are not Christians. I remember when my brother was dying of a brain tumor, he, he passed away eight years ago tomorrow. And when he was dying of a brain tumor, declaring my belief and his belief that God would heal him, but he didn't. And when you put your, your head out there, it's difficult to recover from that sometimes. Verses 14 to 15, David expresses his emotional pain and stress, as, as well as perhaps referring to physical pain, we don't know, but I think a lot of this is kind of hyperbole. He's talking about how he really feels inside. He says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my, stung, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. It doesn't get any worse for David. And it may be today that maybe you feel like David did in Psalm 22, in deep, maybe physical and maybe emotional, or maybe both, deep physical and emotional pain, abandoned by God. And it may be today that you feel a little bit like our Naomi, abandoned, you know, trapped in a small room with no way out on your own. And sometimes life can feel like that, can't it? When it's just us and we just feel like there's no way out and I'm stuck and I'm trapped and I'm abandoned. And some people I know have emotional turmoils in their lives that are so hard and I don't know how they keep going. Sometimes with, whether it's health issues or, or, or family struggles or, 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 or emotional problems, just to keep going, to get up, to keep going day by day is a real effort. 
Maybe you're like that this morning. Maybe that for you is where you're at. You feel like you're stuck in that lift, trapped and no way out. Some people struggle with physical pain that makes life almost unbearable at times. When I had surgery about 18 months ago for, for uh, stomach problems, and I had some intense pain that I've never experienced before in my life, and, and it would kind of come and go, it would last for me 8, 12 hours, and then it would subside, and then it would come again, and it was horrendous. And I remember just kind of praying to God in the dark, Lord, either take my life because I can't, I can't handle this pain anymore, or come again. Jesus, you need to come back, or, or you need to take me because I can't cope with this. And that was just for 8 or 12 hours, but some people struggle with physical pain like that, for years and years, and I don't know how they do it. And the physical pain always bring, brings great immense emotional pain, doesn't it? As we wonder, where is God in this? God, please help me. And as we read David's cry for help in this psalm, I think it helps us in a number of ways. Firstly, we can see that it's okay to tell God how we feel. Even if we feel angry with God. Whether we're trapped in that room, whether we're in physical anguish or, or, or emotional anguish or both God has seen fit to preserve this psalm and, and many other psalms which are full of people just kind of rent, sort of venting their rage and their questions at God, why? What's going on God? And I think the reason God's done that, it's not a mistake it, it's there for us to know that it's okay to tell God how we feel David cries out, why have you forsaken me? And to you or to me, or certainly to me, that, that doesn't seem very respectful. It doesn't seem very reverent to speak to God like that. But I think that one of the reasons the Psalms in particular are full of people expressing their various emotions to God is because God wants us to know that it's okay to be real with Him and it's okay to be honest with God. Because God already knows every thought in our mind anyway. So to come to God and kind of pretend everything's wonderful and we think life is wonderful, God just wants us to be real and honest. And if life is the pits, to tell God, Lord, right now my life is the pits. And I don't feel great this morning. And, and I don't really like you, God, this morning because of what's happening. And God's big enough to deal with our honesty and our anger in those situations. He wants us to tell him. He can handle our honesty, even when that's directed at him. But secondly, David, whilst expressing his pain, <coughs> excuse me, whilst expressing his pain and his emotion and questioning God, he never let go of God either. Twice, while he's in the middle of pouring out his questions, seeming to, to sort of stop believing that God's even there, he says this little word, yet. And in doing so, he's recognizing that God is bigger than he is and that there is something bigger going on than his immediate circumstances in his life. In verses 3 and 4, he says, yet. In the midst of crying out, but he says, yet. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. And for David, his circumstances were making him feel as though God had abandoned him or maybe didn't even exist. Yet, says David, I know that you do exist. I know that you have acted in the past in great ways. And David was able to look back uh, and see what God had done in his own life and in, and in the history of the nation of Israel. He was able to look back and recall what God had done. And as he was able to look back in his own life, and as he poured out his complaint to God, he remembers God's work in his own life. Yet, he says, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. And despite his, his circumstances, despite his horrific situation and feelings, David knows that 
God is real. And that God has been intimately involved in his life since before he was even born. So even in the midst of the pain and his doubts and his questions, he still manages to cling on, and maybe just by his fingernails. And sometimes that's all we do, isn't it? We just cling on. And there's not a lot else going on in our heart, but we just cling on to the belief, yet you are God. And he clings on, even though his life seems like it's collapsing all around him. And God wants us to do the same thing when we're in those deep, dark situations, abandoned, feeling like we're abandoned, in that room with nowhere to go, to know who God is and to know what God has done in the past, to cling on to what we know is true. David managed to do that. He clinged on to what he knew was true. And it's this knowledge of what is really true, despite how he feels, that enables David to keep going even though his life seemed like it was collapsing all around him. And God wants us to do the same thing, to to cling on to what we know is true, even when it doesn't feel like it's true. You know, when when life hits rock bottom, you know, we, we have all the nice songs that we sing and all the verses that we know and all the rest of it and all the things that we say in church when life's good, but when life is at its lowest, all of that often disappears and, and we're just clinging on. But God wants us to do the same, to know that despite the the horror of my situation, despite appearances to the contrary, God is real and God is in control and God has not abandoned me. And in Hebrews 13 verse 5, the writer says these words, quoting back from Deuteronomy 31 6, he says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And the truth is that God will never leave us or forsake us. We know that's true because the Bible says so. It may not always feel true to us. Our circumstances may make us feel very differently. Feelings come and feelings go and they're real and they're strong and we need to take notice of them but we don't live by them or we shouldn't do. And I think one of the things that we can learn from this psalm is, that, is this, that God wants us to choose to believe the truth. And write this on your outline. God wants us to choose to believe the truth even when our circumstances and our feelings tell us otherwise. Sometimes our circumstances and our feelings will point us the complete opposite direction away from God. And God wants us to come back and say, I know my life is, a, is the pits right now, but I'm going to choose, I'm going to make that choice to believe that what God says in his word is true. And God is calling on us to keep on trusting him because we know that he's real. We know that he's promised to never leave us or forsake us and is at work in our circumstances because the Bible says this is so. And to cling on in those moments to the truth of God's word, it might not feel true, but because God has said it, we know it is true. And even though sometimes the physical and emotional pain that we suffer can be all-consuming and and just overwhelming, one of the key things that helped David in this psalm was to look back on moments in the past in his own life and in his nation's life to see when God had been at work. And that's why it can be really helpful. I know a lot of Christians keep some kind of personal journal And I don't keep a a kind of daily journal, but I do keep a a sort of record of of moments in my life when I've really known God speak and act and move. So that when we go through those dark times, when when it seems like God has stopped acting and moving and listening and speaking, that we can look back and say, well, I know that that right now things don't seem this way, but I'm going to go back to the truth of what God has done in my life in the past. And it's what we, we need to go back to those those moments, and go back to Scripture 
to what we know is true. So that when things are tough, we can look not only at the truth of the Bible, but also at our own experience and recall how God has worked in the past. And this can help, this can help us face and deal with the present and the future. And so David was able to cling on through his terrible circumstances. And he made that decision to keep on praising God even in the storms of life. In verse 22 he says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. And through making the choice to believe the truth of who God is and, and what God does, David was able to battle on through his circumstances and make the choice to praise and to worship God. And that's because God is worthy of our worship simply because of who he is and not because of what he does or doesn't do for us. But David also did this, I believe, because he knew that one of the best things he could do in the storm was to lift his eyes and to worship God, to lift his eyes from his own pain and make that choice to worship God. And as David continues in worship, he looks forward in time to when the people of the whole earth will worship God. Verse 27, he says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion, being, dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And as we read these verses at the end of Psalm 22, the Holy Spirit is moving us to look beyond David and his experiences to the fullness of God's kingdom in the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, when sorrow and anguish will have gone forever and ever. And instead, we will, these things will give way to joy and to worship as we worship Jesus as we really should forever and ever. And this is the key to the psalm. David was writing about his own experiences. And it's a window into his own soul and, and into his journey with God. And it's a window which is, can be really helpful for us because we can identify with that, can't we? And it's an, it can be an, an encouragement and a help to us. But whether David knew it or not, he was actually giving us a window into future events that concerned his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was God, 100% God, but he was also 100% human. The Son of God became a human being. And his human ancestry, he was the, the direct descendant of King David who wrote this psalm. Jesus was the rightful king of Israel as far as his human nature was concerned. He was the, the Messiah or the Christ. Christ is the same as Messiah. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. And it simply means God's chosen anointed king. And this was Jesus. And this psalm is a messianic psalm. It, it, it's, a, it's pointing forward to the one who would come, to Jesus. So David was writing about real events in his own life, but what David experienced was a forerunner to what the Lord Jesus would experience as he died on the cross. And the things he wrote about were both about himself and the coming Messiah, even if David perhaps didn't fully realise it at the time. So we can and we should read this psalm as describing David's experiences, but we can and we should also read this psalm and understand that it describes the experience of Jesus whilst on the cross. Both, the, both Jesus on the cross, he deliberately goes back to this psalm and quotes it deliberately so that we know that this is describing his experience. And Matthew and Mark, as they write Matthew and Mark's Gospel, they apply David's words in Psalm 22 to the experience of Jesus on the cross. Some of them are, direct, are the words directly lifted from Psalm 22. Others are, are more generally kind of quoted. And as we look at the events that took place as Jesus hung on the cross, we see these verses either directly quoted or alluded to. So with that in mind, we're going to read Psalm 22 again, but just verses 1 to 18. And this time as we read it, we're going to read it with the cross in mind. So as we read these verses, picture Jesus on the cross. No longer David 
delving into his darkness of his soul. But now Jesus on the cross, this is who it's speaking of. So we're going to read Psalm 22, 1 to 18. The words of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their, their prey open their mouths wide against me and poured out like water. Oh, my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me and a band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet and count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And as we read Psalm 22, and as we read the Gospels, we see this psalm fulfilled by Jesus. Mark 15:29, paralleling Psalm 22, 7 and 8, says, those who passed by hurled insults at him. And then Mark 15:24, paralleling Psalm 22, verse 18, says, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each one would get. Verse 16 of Psalm 22 says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. And most crucially of all, Matthew 27, 46, reaching right back into Psalm 22, verse 1, tells us, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this cry of Jesus takes place about three o'clock in the afternoon, after, the th after three hours of darkness, when the sun should have been at its brightest. The darkness was, was powerful, it was tangible, and this darkness was real, but it was also symbolic. It was symbolic of God's judgment and God's wrath against sin, your sin, my sin. And the darkness symbolized the alienation that Jesus was experiencing, because in some way that we will never understand, we will never be able to grasp, Jesus, who, as to his divine nature, was the eternal Son of God, was in some way separated from this eternal relationship that he had enjoyed with the Father. And so instead of addressing God as Father, as he does right the way throughout the Gospels, now he addresses him as, my God. There's distance now. There's some kind of distance in their relationship. Some kind of separation has taken place. That eternal, perfect, loving, Father-Son relationship was in some way changed, broken, altered during these three hours of darkness. Don Carson, American, uh, or a Canadian theologian, writes these words, Jesus, as the sin-bearing sacrifice, must endure the temporary abandonment of the Father. Separation from God is horrible enough for any creature. When it concerns one who is uniquely the Son of God, it is impossible to assess what this may have meant to Jesus. 
This is one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire gospel narrative. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writing some years later about this incident says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never became a sinner. Jesus was sinless, but he became your sin. He became my sin. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, he experienced horrendous physical pain and suffering. But he also experienced the pain of bearing your sin and bearing my sin. Jesus was sinless, yet he chose to become your sin and mine. He became the very thing that he hated and despised the most. And the horror of that must have been horrendous for Jesus. Jesus also experienced abandonment. Because as he became your sin and mine, those three hours of darkness, it was no longer possible for God the Father to look upon him. And this eternal relationship was in some way changed or, or, or altered or broken. And in some mysterious way that we will never understand, Jesus, God the Son, was abandoned and forsaken by God the Father. David, writing about his own life, felt broken. Sorry, felt forsaken, even though he knew he actually wasn't. That's how he felt, that's what life felt like for him, but he knew he wasn't. But Jesus really was forsaken by God and abandoned. And, and, and during that abandonment, the wrath of a holy God fell on Jesus. The wrath that you deserve, that I deserve, for all my sin, for all our sin and evil and wickedness and rebellion. And Jesus took it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And we don't really know what that was like or what it felt like for Jesus to experience God's wrath. We're not talking about physical pain now. We're into a whole kind of spiritual realm of separation from God and then somehow in this separation, the spiritual wrath of a holy God is poured out on Jesus. We don't know what that felt like or what it was like for Jesus to experience God's wrath. Except that, think of it this way, if God punishes unrepentant humans for all eternity in hell for their sin, and if Jesus took the punishment that for us would have been eternal in just three hours on the cross, then all we can say is that it must have been horrific beyond words or beyond our imagination. God thought of your sin... God thought of my sin as belonging to Jesus and then he punished Jesus instead of you and me. So that if and when we surrender our lives to Jesus and put our faith in him, we can be viewed as being as holy and as perfect as Jesus. It's phenomenal. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus instead of you. Jesus gives you his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness if we trust in him, if we surrender our lives to him if we turn away from our sin. Isn't that amazing? What a phenomenal concept. And it may be this morning that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never embraced Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. And this morning I just wanted to, to appeal to you. Jesus did it all for you. Jesus died there on the cross and took your sin. And the offer is available to you this morning to be completely cleansed of your sin, removed, and not just to have your sins forgiven, but to be given the holiness and perfection of Jesus by God. Not just to have your bank accounts, your debts cleared, but to, but to be given a credit with God. And if you want to explore what that means further or, or would like to know more about trusting in Jesus, then please come and chat with me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about that. 
But as we go back to Psalm 22 and see David expressing his suffering, anguish, and sense of abandonment, we, we, we can draw comfort. Because as we've seen, when, whilst Psalm 22 captures how David felt, abandoned by God, even though he wasn't, when Jesus was on the cross, he really was abandoned by God in some way, in order that our sins might be dealt with. And so when, like David, our life is full of pain and suffering and emotional turmoil, we can turn in those moments in faith to Jesus knowing that he really does know how we feel. The call isn't to come to David and pray. David's with Jesus now in heaven. The call is to come to Jesus because he understands in a way that nobody else understands. The Bible describes Jesus as our high priest. In other words, he's the one who brings us to God and and God to us. That's what a priest does. And Jesus is our great high priest. And Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our high priest, Jesus, understands. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our pain. Jesus grew up in a home where his human father wasn't his real father. And that innuendo, that that questioning of his parentage never went away. His family rejected him. His human brothers and sisters at one point turn up and say, this this guy's mad. He's, He's possessed by demons, some people said. We don't know when Joseph died, but it was sometime before Jesus began to teach and preach. So Jesus knew what it was like to lose a loved one. He was homeless. The Bible said the birds, in fact, Jesus said the birds have their nests, the foxes have their holes, but but Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. He watched the men that he'd been training and and discipling. He watched them betray him, abandon him, and deny him. He was misunderstood. People questioned his motives. Some accused him of being possessed by demons. And finally, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was spat upon, he was mocked, and then he was nailed naked. Forget the images of a man with a cloth around his middle, nailed naked to a cross in utter shame. As he was then abandoned by his heavenly Father, and as he became your sin and bore God's wrath. So God through Jesus, God in Jesus, understands what life is like here on planet Earth. And I want to encourage you this morning that if right now you're struggling with life, And if you're not this week, something will happen soon that will cause you to. I want to encourage you that Jesus also struggled. Ultimately, he experienced what we will never experience if we've trusted in him, separation from and abandonment by God the Father. We will never experience that if we've trusted in Jesus. But Jesus did. So as as Hebrews says, when, like David, we feel that life is just a pit, let us therefore approach that throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace uh, to help us in our time of need. So write this down. God wants you and me to come to his throne of grace knowing that he understands our pain. When life is at its lowest level, there is a man in heaven who understands your pain and understands my pain. He's seated on a throne, but it's a throne of grace where he treats us in a way we don't deserve. God doesn't want us to minimize or belittle our struggles our doubts, our questions, our pain. He wants us to be honest about them and bring them to him because in the person of Jesus, God uniquely understands our problems. You know, if we surrendered our lives to Jesus and are following him, then following 
in his footsteps will also mean following in the footsteps of suffering. Anybody who preaches or teaches that following Jesus will mean health and wealth and prosperity is not teaching what the Bible says. It's a false gospel. The Bible is full of warnings that following Jesus here on earth will mean and will bring many hardships, difficulties and even suffering. And as we study this psalm, interpreting it through the New Testament so that we can fully understand its real meaning, we discover that the true hope of the Christian is not in health and wealth and prosperity here on earth, but it's about forgiveness, it's about being made right with God through what Jesus did on the cross, and it's about an eternity in heaven. And as we study the Bible, including this psalm, we discover the uncomfortable truth that it's often in the pain that God is most at work in us, helping us to be more like Jesus. Just as God was at work in the pain of the cross, achieving a future glorious hope for Christ and for us. David wrote in Psalm 22 that one day all would bow down to the Lord and worship him. All those that respond to what Jesus did on the cross will one day be with Jesus forever and ever and worship him forever and ever. And it was the eternal hope of that joy and of the reality of that joy that enabled Jesus to go through the agony of the cross. Hebrews 12 says, it was for the joy that was put before Jesus that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so like Jesus, the call for us is to try to stay focused on that eternal future that we have in and through Jesus. Because if we've trusted in him, then we will be part of that great mass of people saved by Jesus to worship and enjoy him forever. The last verse of Psalm 22 says this, They will proclaim his righteousness to a people as yet unborn, for he has done it. If we've trusted in Jesus, then we are now part of all of those across the world who are able to proclaim his righteousness because he has done it. What has he done? He's endured the abandonment of the cross, absorbed the wrath of a holy God so that we can be forgiven, made right with God and worship and enjoy him forever. I'm going to close this morning and as we close, we're going to watch a DVD.